นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสังอ่าเอ่อ 
I mention that by way of an example of how important it is to stop and just ask ourselves: you know, do we, what do we, what do we think we're doing when we're implying these 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 Buddhists call skillful means and these tools that we use in spiritual life? Like with the meditation, I give some instructional guidance to the introduction each evening, just by way of of helping us remember to reflect on the kind of effort that we're making, not just to get some initial idea and then to hammer away at it, hoping that it's going to work out to be true, but also secretly half afraid that we don't know what we're doing and we're wasting our time. That's really unfortunate. It's important to be able to question and consider what we're doing. So with this business of contemplation, it's certainly something that the, the Buddha spoke in praise of very highly and there's one place in the scriptures, I think it was Venerable Sariputta, was asked what are the what is needed for the arising of right view or clear seeing, you know, that, that kind of precision of perspective that means that our hearts and minds are no longer obstructed by deluded views. What is needed for it? And as I say, I think it was Viral Sariputta who replied in saying there are two conditions that could give rise. Two conditions could give rise to the, to this right view or this clear seeing. And, and one was hearing the instruction from somebody else who knows, somebody else who has such clarity of consciousness. That's one. And the other one was this uh, yoniso manasikara or wisely reflecting or wise contemplation. So, yeah, there are many instances where this is, this is raised up as regularly reflecting or wisely reflecting is a doorway for opening into insight, into clear seeing. But what are we doing when we contemplate? Is it the same as thinking? Well, when this question was raised with, with Ajahn Chah, and as I mentioned a minute ago, he, he pointed out that his way of talking about it was that that yes, we use the faculty of thinking in contemplation, but that's only a way of directing our attention. The thinking is not the contemplation. The thinking is a way of directing attention. Attention itself is not thinking. We investigate with attention, with a feeling inquiry. That's what inquiry, that's what investigation is about, this directing of attention towards something that we're interested in. And yes, we use thinking to go there. We use thinking to direct attention. But the thinking itself is not the point. And so, for instance, like the example that we're encouraged to contemplate impermanence. I was speaking with somebody today who was who had been suffering for quite some time over a bereavement. And they had ended up feeling a considerable loss of faith in their previously held religious convictions because it didn't give them any any means of dealing with this sense of loss. And in discussion we were we were just talking about she she wanted to know what the Buddhist approach was and and I was saying, well one of the things that around death is you know, it's it's there's no denying the fact that there's a sense of loss brings a sense of sadness, and there's nothing wrong with that. What's encouraged when we're if we're suffering over something is to stop and say, well, you know, what am I hanging on to here that's causing the suffering? 
because death itself is perfectly natural there's nothing wrong with death yes it can be sad and yes it can be painful but you can't say there's anything wrong with it it's, it's part of the package it's absolutely guaranteed if I was to say that the leaves on the trees out here shouldn't fall in a few months time you'd think I was crazy of course the leaves on the trees should fall that's what happens and then eventually every plant out there will die we all know that we, we don't make a big thing out of it however when it comes with some other living beings like ourselves and we, we do act and get around as if we're not going to die and, and then when somebody else that we care about dies we, 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 feel we can end up feeling like it shouldn't have happened and so one of the themes that's encouraged in, in coming to terms with this difficult aspect of our lives is to regularly reflect or to contemplate the impermanence of all things so in being interested in this and say well I don't want to suffer unnecessarily so I should yeah, pay attention to this and prepare myself for losing all my friends everybody's going to die and you know, sometimes Tan Punya and I talk about who's going to die first and he says well I think, you know, I think I should die first and I say well I think you should die first and I say no I don't want you to die first I think I should die first you can go to my funeral he says no no I'll go to your funeral and we sometimes have a little argy-bargy over who's going to go to whose funeral and it's it's an interesting thing to think about who's going to die first eventually we'll all die everybody's going to die in Vietnam they have this interesting tradition of as you get a bit older you uh, buy your coffin and you put it in your living room and then you invite your friends to come around and admire it you have tea and sit around your coffin and you go ooh, ooh that's nice ooh <laughs> and like Ajahn Chah's coffin was all inlaid with mother of pearl stunningly beautiful coffin he had it for years before he died and one of the senior monks in Thailand at the moment I was speaking with Ajahn Sumato yesterday and one of the senior monks that I knew when I lived out there he's about to die he's got severe advanced cancer now and probably won't last the end of the rains retreat and he'll die soon and so Ajahn Liam one of the other monks has bought his coffin for him so he's now got his coffin there in the monastery and everybody comes ooh that's nice and it's a way of bringing it up and acknowledging the fact, the reality that death comes to all of us and so this is not something we just have to wait until we're about to die to reflect on it's something that is skillful and to contemplate regularly whenever we see death around us or, or deterioration or change we're encouraged to stop and notice it and say right, death, everything dies now yes we use thinking to contemplate death we use thinking so everything dies and everything that's born dies everything changes there's nothing there's nothing that has been created that will not fall apart or is there anything we can consider can I think of anything that has been put together or compounded or created that's not going to disintegrate and so we're using our thinking to ponder on this theme but the thinking is not really the point what we're doing while we're using the thinking is feeling deeper down feeling how does this affect us now if this is just merely a head exercise it's not contemplation and we can get caught up in it and we can go into all sorts of arguments and debates with ourselves and, and we can get lost in it well that's, if we do that well then it's quite clearly no longer contemplation probably better referred to as proliferation and the difference between contemplation and proliferation you can always tell the difference because if it's contemplation we can just stop the thinking 
come back to silence come back to the body feel how we feel and then pick it up again and carry on Go into it. look at it from another angle if it's proliferation we tend to not be able to stop the thinking like this, like that it could be this way, it could be that way or what about that and it goes on and on and we lose the thread we don't stay with the theme the mind goes off and it gets all sorts of caught up in all sorts of thinking about you know movie scripts or or a holiday or or whatever else or food or something like that. oh I lost, lost my theme of contemplation on them and permanence so yes we use the aim as to uh, the skilled as how to somehow use our mindfulness contemplation without mindfulness is not possible how to use mindfulness to generate mindfulness to engage with the thinking mindfully engage the thinking to direct a feeling inquiry I think that would be one way of talking about contemplation and, and then to appreciate the power of this tool in our spiritual life there are many people who approach uh, Buddhist practice with the idea that it's all meditation and meditation is all about making your mind blank silent just sort of empty everything out just focus on the breath and any thought or distraction comes along just get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it come back to the breath, back to the breath, back to the breath but, and you can become very willful at it but it can bring about a tremendous rigidity quite a painful rigidity in spiritual life and it might also lead to a kind of narrowing of attention whereby complex issues cannot be held in the mind and of course to not be able to hold complexity to simply dismiss complex issues with simplistic solutions is one of the signs of fundamentalism and to be too willful and too rigid in how we apply our spiritual efforts can be a symptom of of fundamentalism and and all the painful and unfortunate consequences that come with that however this is not what the Buddha was encouraging rather he was encouraging the kind of mindfulness and the kind of meditative effort that means that yes we can simplify life down and make our mind very focused and very still but then when complex issues come up that just by coming back to for instance the meditation object and stilling the mind it is not really resolved it isn't dealt with it isn't received well then we need to turn our attention to this issue and receive it and inquire and then start a dialogue and this is contemplation to engage in in a skillful dialogue with our own hearts remember to discover the wonderful power in that and the textbooks can't tell us what to do or textbooks don't have to tell us what to do we can find out for ourselves we can experiment with it experiment with the power of the mind to inquire in a contemplative way to see how effective it is for instance in coming dealing with something like anger anger can be a real problem you can be meditating you can be very very good at meditation technique I know people who can be really good at meditation technique and they can talk 
very eloquently about the scriptures and very intelligent, very clever and yet they just habitually angry people just negative attitudes and bitterness and that's painful and that's unfortunate and, and maybe, I don't know but maybe sometimes this is the result of, of being not being sufficiently creative in one's spiritual effort from the perspective of inquiry and contemplation when anger comes along we, we don't have to just keep coming back to the breath or just practice some meditation technique like loving kindness or I know some people who, who are very angry and, and they, they think well it's just because of attachment to the body and so they practice meditation on loathsomeness of the body you know how it talks about in the Buddhist scriptures you're supposed to practice on how repulsive the body is and blood and pus and feces and brains and urine and sweat and snot and you know you're supposed to meditate on these things and and I know people who, who do meditate on them but it doesn't seem to make them less angry in fact I think it makes them more angry because they come disgusted with this body disgusting repulsive thing that it is and life is disgusting anyway and everybody's attached and everybody's making all these problems because of their attachments but there isn't a great deal of freedom in such a uh, perspective and surely the, the point of all spiritual effort is for us to each discover some increased freedom and well-being and contentment so rather than habitually or, or a perfunctory application of effort and, and meditation skills uh, we can contemplate anger really 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 inquire into ask questions about it ask what we're getting out of it you know, like, I mean, sometimes you when you're feeling angry it's easy to be getting off on something again I was speaking to somebody recently who very unfortunately has been suffering the unpleasantness of being bullied at work and oh, that is unfortunate and unpleasant whenever it happens and and there's no justification for bullying and, and this person has been very distressed by it and, but they're also very angry about it and really angry and, and in the conversation we were having all they were doing was actually going on about how unjust the other person was and, and ranting about how unjust the other people were and, and complaining about all their faults but unaware of the fact that those people are not even here they're probably off you know I don't know having a nice time somewhere Sunday afternoon just having a walk along the beach or having a picnic or whatever and this person is suffering terribly and so from a contemplative perspective it would be more wise to to pick up that anger and say well you know what am I getting out of this relationship to anger and to contemplate it why am I angry? You know, they, they, they might have bullied me a month last month, but they're not bullying me now. And they might be off there having a nice time. They might even all be dead as far as that goes. And they may not even be around anymore. And yet here I am. So what am I doing? What am I doing this for? What am I getting? So we can ask these questions. If we're contemplating in a skillful, feeling way, asking of our own hearts, what am I getting off on here? What am I and sometimes it's something like righteousness is quite often the case but 
Just have somebody tell you you shouldn't be righteous and you shouldn't be getting indignant. That's not very good. Just to have somebody tell us that doesn't help us let go, does it? But if we contemplate for ourselves, really engage the anger and the suffering of it and say, well, why am I suffering here? Well, like with grief, you know, what am I hanging on to here that's making me suffer? And if we really ask of our own hearts in a feeling way, well then, these quiet answers come up. And our hearts tell us the answer. We don't need somebody else to tell us, actually. Sometimes it's helpful to have a dialogue with somebody else, but it's really important to be able to dialogue with our own hearts and to be able to listen quietly for something to just come up. And it will, if we're quiet and mindful, we ask these real questions and these answers come up and say, oh, you're getting off on being right. And then we can see the pointlessness of it. You see, well, the pointlessness of going on about somebody else's fault and how they shouldn't be bullying us. Well, what's more important, actually, is that I need to somehow learn how to stop being angry about this. That's more important. But again, it's to say, just somebody tells us that, that's not going to help. If we can really ask ourselves the question, get taken to the point of seeing that for ourselves, then letting go happens. And we simply don't want to be angry anymore. And when we really feel that we're doing the anger, we don't want to be angry anymore, then letting go of the anger happens. Oh yeah, this is this is helpful. Maybe you remember the image that the Buddha gave about this in the scriptures where he talks about that uh, soldier who got shot with an arrow and he's got an arrow in his leg. And his friends come along and, and want to help him take the arrow out. And... And then he says, no, he says, don't pay attention to me. Find out who shot it and, and find out, you know, what his education was, how much money he had, whether he was good looking, how, you know, to have a nice wife, how many children he's got. I mean, what would you think? I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? You don't want to worry about who shot the arrow or whether they had a better education than you. <laughs> if you've got an arrow stuck in your leg, the important thing to do is to get the arrow out. And so that's a, an image to encourage us in our contemplation to direct our attention, to direct our thinking in a way that's effective and skillful. So one way we can contemplate is to, for instance, to see the loss, to see how we we lose out by our, our unskillful thinking or to see the habits that we've, we've got into as we live in a society that, like litigation these days, is born out of commitment to individuality and individual right well, my feeling is a lack of, of real spiritual awareness because people don't see the effect of you know, dwelling on resentment revenge is a lot of what's involved with it and, and then the result of, of, of thinking in this way thinking I'll feel better if I get my rights or I'll feel better if I make this other person suffer well such thinking really it's not very productive, is it? I mean, it's making our life more difficult. I think I mentioned not so long ago the result of litigation in Australia now means it's too expensive to get medical insurance, and so now anaesthetists are all retiring or leaving the country because they can't get, they can't afford insurance anymore. A friend of mine who's an anaesthetist in Australia, he's a very young man, and but he's going to retire and play the uh, stock market instead because he can't afford. The insurance. In fact, I think insurance is you know, not even available anymore for anaesthetists because there's so much litigation. Or Princess Diana's memorial. You know, you've got to go through a barbed wire fence with people standing there with machine guns now to get in. 
because somebody slipped over on the slime. Somebody slipped over on the slime and ended up in hospital and I guess the threat of litigation, they had to close it all down and now put up these fences and only allowed certain people and there's all these guys with dark glasses on and walkie-talkies and goodness knows what else standing around making sure that nobody slips over again. And today somebody still slipped over on the mud outside the fountain because it's been raining so much. So now they're going to have to take up all the grass and all the mud and put foam rubber all around. <laughs> and then people are going to have to be walked around. <laughs> well, litigation, I mean, that's of course taking it to ridiculous, but these imbalances in, in our own inner world and also in our outer world, these imbalances come, why? What, where do they come out of? Well, our wrong thinking. And why do we get lost in wrong thinking? Because we don't see how much we lose by our wrong thinking. And the consequence of the heedless habits we have, feeling justified in our indignation. I was moved by a, a rather lovely story I read not so long ago about a, a young boy who, I think he, I don't know, something happened and he had to go in for a standard x-ray or whatever and they found out that his neck had been broken for 10 years. I don't know if you saw this story, but he had an accident 10 years ago and his neck was broken. It had been broken for 10 years and they hadn't picked it up at the time. And when they asked him how he felt about it, he said, oh, well, I'm sure the doctors were doing their best at the time. They can't get it right every time. I thought, well, that's nice. <laughs> you, you almost never hear that, do you? The, well, they can't get it right every time. I'm sure they're doing their best. Well, that was a child speaking. Now, if it was an adult, of course, you know, you'd be on the phone to the solicitor and see what you can get out of the hospital, out of the doctors. There's something beautiful about a, a willingness to forgive. And again, if we engage something like that contemplatively, we can ponder on it. We can hold that image in the mind, hold the thought in the mind, and, and you say, why is that beautiful? You know, why is something like that beautiful? And and really think about it. But not think about it in a way whereby the mind just goes off into arguments and then gets lost in something else. And, but just think about it in a way whereby we're in touch with our hearts, we're in touch with how that feels to us. That a young person thinks that way and an old person thinks that way. A similar incident I heard of in America, you might have heard me mention the story before, of this family who were driving across America and they, there was a mother and father in the front and a little boy in the back and they stopped and picked up a hitchhiker and they're driving along and it turned out the hitchhiker was a Seventh-day Adventist or a Jehovah's Witness, one or the other, I was getting them mixed up and very quickly started to try and convert the family. The mother and father in the front seat there were listening politely to this spiritual argument was being put forth in the back there and the little boy in the back there as well he was listening I don't know maybe he was eight or nine or something and he heard this story about how what happens is there's only going to be something like I don't know 15,000 people go to heaven and the world is going to come to an end very soon and you really got to do something about this and join up sign up to this particular system otherwise you're going to be left out and the little boy, when he heard that, he said, well, you know, he said, if I had that ticket, I think I'd give it to my friend. Oh, that's different. 
Yeah. Well, what, what a beautiful thing. Right? You know, that little boy, so genuinely spontaneous. Oh, if I had that ticket, I'd want to give it to my friend. Now, when you hear something, a little smile comes up. You go, oh, how beautiful. Now, why is that beautiful? Why is that beautiful? And why is something else ugly? Not just to take sides and say, oh, you know, that's sweet and you know, enjoy it, but to really contemplate it. To really contemplate what, why we find something like that beautiful or why we find anger and indignation, whether it's within ourselves or whether it's in other people, sad and, or threatening. Feeling threatened is something that we can contemplate. If we, if we know how to go to quietness within, silence within, in a mindful way, not just in a willful, concentrating, focusing on our breaths, because we're taking a position against the activity of our mind, but because it's a skill that's appropriate to nourish the heart, to strengthen the heart with quietness, with stillness. And if we know how to do that, then in that stillness, issues come up, difficulties come up, complex, like feeling threatened. We can, in our quietness, we can raise that up and listen to it and feel it, receive it, ask questions of it. What's going on here? What is this about? We don't rush to get an answer. There's another thing that we can contemplate how feeling threatened is troubling us and so we raise it as a theme of contemplation, what's going on here. But then if we're not skilled in our contemplation we can then rush and try and fix it. And that doesn't work. Rather, it's better to see these complex issues or these challenges or these dilemmas as keys to open a door. We pick it up as, as we would, we pick up a key. We can open the door with it. If we hold it rightly, if we hold it carefully, if we hold it steadily, and we've got to have some light, there's got to be some clarity there, we've got to see where to put the key in, we're going to turn it and then we go forward. Or we can see them, these complex issues, as I often you see them as offerings. And if we come into the Dhamma Hall here and we bow to the shrine and we offer candles and incense and flowers to the Buddha. We can also offer up our, our problems, our struggles. And just the same way that we offer these beautiful offerings, we can also offer these things up to the Buddha and to see in our contemplation to make offerings of our struggles. Rather than, I say that as, as, a, as a contrast to the attitude of seeing it's a, it's a problem that I've got to fix, I've got to sort this out. If I'm together, if I'm sorted, if I've got anything going for me, I'll be able to solve this problem. If we go into our contemplation with that attitude, well, then greed takes, tends to take over or judgment tends to take over. But if rather we stay in touch with the silent, quiet, feeling inner awareness and then allow the complex issue to just be there just to offer it up into awareness and that's what the Buddha is and the Buddha is not this Buddha image here, the Buddha is edgeless awareness here and now judgment free awareness that's the Buddha, completely undiluted undefiled, undistorted so to the degree we have any such awareness we offer up into awareness and just allow them to be there and then wait and then listen and if some particular sort of effort is called for, 
well then we'll be guided how to make that effort you know the Buddhist teachings on the, the four right efforts so what sort of efforts should I be making sometimes you feel well the teachings say just allow things to be there but then some things I've allowed to be there for so long it looks like they're taking over it's like sometimes guests you have in the monastery <laughs> or maybe guests you have in your house you, know, you can't always allow them to be there sometimes they're just taking advantage of the place and sometimes what you've got to do is just say you're out of here you know, your, your time's up in the nicest possible way or sometimes even being nice is not necessarily the right way sometimes you've got to be a little bit you know, strong not rude hopefully but a little bit strong with unwanted guests who are taking advantage of the situation so there are the different types of effort it's not the case that we just allow everything to be there like as in Chai used to say that if a dog's got rabies and is coming and snapping at your leg you don't sit there and say may all beings be well <laughs> you'll have rabies before <laughs> all beings are well you know you take a stick and you give it a little whack and, you know, you'd rather not do it but that's what's needed you know, if the dog's got rabies and it's going to bite your leg you just you know, you whack and, and move quickly and then contemplate may all beings be well and so they're teaching on the four right efforts what kind of efforts should I be making in my practice and the teaching is the teaching to avoid the arising of as yet unarisen unwholesome states of mind so a specific kind of effort to protect your heart so that you can avoid the arising of unyet, as yet unarisen unwholesome states of mind there's all sorts of unwholesome states of mind that, that could potentially come we can't just sit there and go with the moment and whatever and sometimes the right effort is to really strengthen our hearts and protect our hearts and so the kind of effort to protect our heart and from the as yet unarisen unwholesome states of mind is to strengthen the heart with peacefulness to strengthen the heart with restraint to know how to say no to things and to build the strength up to build this potential up not just to wait until these unwholesome states of mind have already arisen if unwholesome states of mind have arisen well then we need to know how to make the effort to get rid of or to remove unwholesome states of mind that have arisen so how do we make that kind of effort saying the, the contemplative effort to really look into for instance anger if it's already arisen to make the kind of effort that sees at the moment what we're doing that's making this thing stick around you know, why can't I just let go of it well we're obviously feeding on it somehow we're hanging on to it in some way too. so to find that kind of effort that we need to apply when something unwholesome is already there in the heart and to question it not with desperate trying to get rid of it but with a, a careful patient questioning feeling inquiry and then the kind of effort that's spoken about is the effort to give rise to as yet unarisen wholesome conditions so for instance faith or gladness or joy or, or kindness or compassion these wholesome states of mind you know, maybe you find that you're just not feeling much compassion maybe getting around with a bitter state of mind and and when you question yourself about how much compassion there is there maybe you just find well there isn't much basically you're just fed up with life you know the weather is wretched not a lousy summer if ever I've seen a lousy summer the crops are ruined goodness knows how many wars going on around wretched politicians won a few gold medals I suppose at the 
but not enough, not as many as the Germans. You know, they got twice as many as we did, I was told today. South Africa, I think, won the rugby. I don't know. Maybe it was Australia. It certainly wasn't New Zealand. You know, you just you'd be feeling bitter and nasty about everything. And I don't care about anybody, really. Give me another appeal for starving Africans. Uh, who needs it? And if you've got that sort of mind state, you say, well, actually, that's not very wholesome. So I need a little bit more compassion. It's not very decent to be getting around such mind states. And so I don't have enough compassion. And well, if I don't have enough compassion, what sort of effort do I need to make to give rise to as yet unarisen, un, as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind? Now, to really see that as a as a theme, how to how to generate that kind of effort? Now, that's a question we can ask of ourselves. To go to our hearts and kind of say, well, there's, there's this wholesome condition that needs to be got away. You can look up in the books, and that's something. You talk to other people, that's something. But also, if we go to our quiet, own quiet inner world and ask that question, or the last of the four right efforts, what kind of effort do I need to maintain already wholesome states of mind? And if you see there is something wholesome in your heart, in your mind, some gladness, some goodness, some kindness, some generosity, maybe you discovered that there's, or, or some peacefulness, there's some clarity of mind that you're not used to, or some equanimity. Maybe you used to always be getting swayed by things all the time and, and getting pushed around by your moods and getting depressed and negative. But then you find you've got some equilibrium of mind, some equanimity of mind. So well, how do I protect this? What sort of effort do I need to make to protect this already risen wholesome state? So these, in other words, in cultivating the four right efforts, yes, there are things that the books say, yes, there are things that teachers say, but our heart's got something to say about it as well. And this is the tool of contemplation. The tool of contemplation is how to enter into the kind of dialogue whereby we can elicit the goodness, the clarity that is potentially there. So in coming to terms with and dealing with the challenges that we find in our daily life, in our formal meditation or in our daily life engagement. and There are endless complex issues to deal with, and social issues, political issues, and also private, personal issues. I would like to encourage us all to come to feeling a valuing of meditative skills, how to guide ourselves into meditation technique and stay with the breath, stay with the body posture, learn to familiarize ourselves with stillness and quietness, but also how to enter into, into intelligent, skillful feeling inquiry or dialogue. And this is, remember, this is not, this thinking directs the inquiry, but thinking is not the point. And that discussion about contemplation, between contemplation and proliferation, Ajahn Chah was saying that, yes, we start with the thinking, but we move towards silence that eventually it's contemplation in silence. Initially it's contemplation with thinking, but it's an eventually it's contemplation in silence. But it's the feeling awareness that is teaching us. So I'll leave you with that for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. Um,